0: Welcome to the Halliday Wine Companion Podcast. This is our space to chat about wine without all the fluff. From how to taste and describe it to how to pair it to that dinner party you're hosting next weekend. We'll be chatting to industry professionals from across the country, tackling all things wine from a palatable perspective. I'm Tom Carr, your host, and I'm part of the team here at Halliday. And this is By The Glass. Good afternoon, lovely people. I am still up in Rutherglen in Victoria's northeast. Came up here for a few days to check out some of the local talent, and I'm having a cracking time. It's uh, bloody beautiful up here. Ah, Now, today is a really interesting topic of conversation. As you'd all know, Rutherglen is one of Australia's oldest wine regions. Grapevines came to the region in the 1850s during the gold rush. And Rutherglen, as many of you will already know from last week's episode, uh, became Australia's unchallenged capital of fortified wines. Now, the future of regions like Rutherglen rely heavily on either new blood moving in or subsequent generations from existing wine families continuing to carry those legacies into the future. Roland Milhinch, uh, known as Rolly About Town, is a descendant of George Francis Morris, one of Australia's pioneering vignerons of the mid-19th century. Formerly a graphic designer, Rolly applied his uh, creative mind to the art of winemaking as now arguably one of the most progressive and playful winemakers in the region. Uh, We're actually at his winery today. It's called Scion and it is beautiful uh, it's I. If I'm trying to describe it to you, I rock up and it's sort of a an old shed facade, and then you come in and it's like uh, this modern Scandi vibe. What was the turn of phrase you used? <laughs> we decided
1: we were going for. Uh, rural, rustic, Australian, Scandinavia.
0: <laughs> that's the one. Uh, so to chat about the importance of New Age thinking in regions that are heavily steeped in tradition, can you please welcome Roly? Hi, Tom. How are you? <laughs> yeah, good. We got our intro in before we got to the you intro, you? but that's okay. Uh, Rolly, I'm loving rather, Glen. It's a nice, nice uh, part of the world. You love living here? I do. I feel really lucky to be here. Although you know you did say when you first moved up here you weren't sure, but now you can't imagine being anywhere else.
1: Well, it's been sixteen years for me now, and that's uh, that's a while. Um, and I can't picture moving for quite some time. It's the regions over the years you get to know its its nuances, and they're really special. I mean, it's it's a it's a great place to be.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Uh, Roly, as I mentioned or alluded to in the intro. We're talking about uh, new age thinking in these old wine regions. How important is generational winemaking in regions like Rutherglen? Look, it's it's so important. I think um, for me,
1: generational uh, family winemaking talks to ideas of uh, resilience, uh, resolve, uh, skill, knowledge specific to where you are. And I've been really fortunate as my journey's uh, evolved in Rutherglen to be Privy to that. I mean, that's an open, open resource for me to share and to also grow that narrative as well. And that's where, in a region where it has tradition, someone who's new to it, I feel lucky, and I feel uh, that that's a real strength that I can draw on to to forge my path.
0: Do you feel the weight of your family name? I mean, you know, you've got a got a a big shoes to uh you know, walk in. Not not really, because I think. You know the shoes—they're they're different colors, or
1: they've got a different um, tread pattern, or they're a different sort of shoe. They—they might be made by the same, I guess, shoemaker, but they're different shoes. Um, if you know, it's an odd analogy, but I, I don't feel <laughs> that—I don't really feel that pressure. Um, and I think it's—it actually is not a pressure; it's an inspiration. Um, some of the traditions that my family have. Uh, form the base of where I start thinking around my wine production. And so they're intertwined, but I've I've chosen to, instead of uh, continue them, to give them a different, I guess, leaning.
0: Yeah. And how important is it, like for a region like Rutherglen, you, you know, you're three hours from melbourne so you're not just around the corner mm. is it difficult for these regions to attract young talent i mean if if people like yourself or some of the other uh, you know uh, multi-generation um uh, wineries up here if you didn't have generations to pass the wineries on to uh you know how do these regions continue to thrive into the future it's interesting. I think in any line of work, succession
1: succession planning is a big challenge. And that's, I think, the beauty of an area I'm in is that that's a known, and so succession is often something which can be resolved. And we've seen that now in seven, eight generation producers, and, and in other regions around Australia too, where that that have a lot of history, succession planning has been one of its successes. And so I think that's, um, that's a real strength but no i think i guess to be more broad as well getting into wine making wine production or any other job for that matter it's really about your passion i think the barriers lie within an individual and how much they want to push and how much power uh, how much passion they will they will have to you know get get through the hurdles to end up doing what they do uh, wine's no different and i feel that in areas like ours that do have this this tradition that's almost a support network so i wouldn't say it's more difficult i'd say Working alongside
0: it has more benefits than anything else. Yeah. And uh, so how important – I mean, obviously you've just touched on it, but I I really want to drill down into it. How important is tradition versus creative thinking and how do you strike that balance? It is a balance and that's the the point. I think um,
1: an area like ours, if we look at it from the perspective of a visitor, it's all the better for having both these – elements rather than just offering one or the other. So I think that's where Rutherglen is an amazingly exciting place um, to visit. Uh, it's, it gives you both. And so it's it's a real
0: strength. And so obviously when you came in, right, I mean you're turning – we've just we, – well, to give you context at home, we sat down and did a bit of a tasting and we worked through all of Rolly's really good wines. Like, and I'm not just saying that, but they're really nice, Rolly – uh, and we were looking at white wines that were made like reds and we were looking at fortified geriff and then we were going to musket gin and then uh, geriffs that we're going to put into um, cocktails and it was just, you know, totally blew my mind as we were moving through the range. <laughs> uh, what motivates your experimental approach to winemaking?
1: I think I think about this a little bit. Um, I think it's my formal training in design where you are – you. Are there to problem solve and when there are things that are challenging that's what inspires you to resolve them it, they're not seen as a problem they're seen as a challenge when you have to have to navigate through a certain um, way of thinking and so my brain sort of molded in that way and when it came to learning about wine making and growing grapes viticulture so as a vineyard on, we're doing both together. As a vineyard on, there were lots of really interesting challenges that I saw when I moved to region and that was really around those varieties which are so traditional and the, the beauty about a traditional variety, tradition suggesting it might have existed in a place for a long time, is how ideal it is for that place. But next to that were lots of little... Uh, narratives I felt these varieties could show us if they're interpreted a certain way Um, so beyond their suitability as a growing variety I felt they had so much suitability as different sorts of drinks and so that's where I guess my, my my I talk about it as my old life my 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 previous life it it just naturally occurred to me that that's where we needed to be and I think too, there's been a wonderful, a wonderful development of as the drinker, the consumer. You know, we're all hungry and thirsty too to see things that are new and playful and different. And so, for for me, that gives me an opportunity. It's not a challenge. It's what what can we take to, to our our wonderful um, followers and and drinkers this this season? What's something that the grapes could possibly give us what's the little gift we can turn into something delicious. And so, yeah, that naturally leads you down this path of experimentation and adaption. And and these are, of course, particularly things like adaption. They're really they're, they're words we talk about a lot at the moment around yeah. c- uh, the circumstances in which we live, and that's,
0: that's energising. I love that, and it's a good thing. So let's chat about musket because musket is the variety of, Rather Glenn mm. right it's Aaron and I've had mm. so many sticky muskets over mm. the last couple of days mm. I'm almost sticked out <laughs> but, but um, they're all um, you know delicious mm. You are really playing around with with musket I've mm. um, got a couple here I mean you make a musket gin mm. uh, you make a fortified uh, musket but not in the classification mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. you know many do. Can you chat to me about some of the uh, experimental things you're doing with the grape? Hmm. well i think
1: first and foremost what is musket it's aromatic that straight away gives you so many clues because when we think about aromatic drinks there are they they approach you in a certain way so for me the first the first cab off the rank was a dry white wine we make with white musket grape orange musket um technically and that gives the most amazing aromatic qualities when we when we just open the bottle and pour it in a
0: glass so is that what we've got there that's we'll what taste. we've got here and oh i'm going to taste it at yeah, the same time as do you chat about it go for
1: it so this is a wine we call blonde because the color is it's a it's a pale straw and blonde for me was a, a a frivolous kind of identity to give it where we think about lunches and fun and and afternoons where typically with musket we're not normally associating in that space and the variety itself offers that when it's made in this style where you know I use a little bit of um, Lee's contact and skin contact to develop the texture that sits next to these aromatic components it builds some savory um, tactile kind of nuance to the palate mm. so on the face of it you might think oh it's a simple aromatic white wine but on the palate the musket can offer this lovely subtle texture which again if we think about the time and place you drink this over lunch into the evening, um, you might be eating with that. So there it's got purpose for food as well. So it's it's a lovely way to introduce those who know Rutherglen for musket in a traditional sense to a, a wine like this that they still – it's been happening for 16 years that we've been making this wine. Even after the third and fourth sip, they're still looking at you going, and this is musket. It's I know. Like, it is. No, it is musket. You can do lots with this grape. And in fact, globally, there are – You know, I think in, in Australia, I mean, I tell people – We've trained Australians so well to think there's one musket, break, I know. <laughs> which is rather Glen Brown musket. I mean, how good is that, right? But in fact, there's you know over 250 varieties under this this umbrella of musket, and yeah. this happens to be one of the other ones.
0: Yeah, because I look at it and, and and guys at home, it's it's this beautiful, very pale lemony colour, and uh, and then it's just. It's dry. You know, mm. I'm just used to having these big, kind of tawny looking, mm. you know, full-bodied mm. muskets. And this is like a total <laughs> th- flip from my mind. Uh, and how about so let's let's uh, let's talk about your musket X and your musket gin, mm. another two mm. things you're playing around. Mm. Let's start with the X, shall we? So
1: X is an interesting wine. It's uh, it's a fortified musket. It's made with the the grapes synonymous with Rutherglen, Rutherglen brown musket and Therefore, the colour has developed beyond what we're seeing in the blonde, which is that pale colour we're seeing, a wine which has got almost like a copper bronze hue um, yeah. that's got this lovely orange luminosity to it. So in the glass, you, you, you can say, okay, this looks like a more traditional uh, style of Rutherglen musket, but that's where it starts and ends. Um, <laughs> one of the challenges is uh, like all, all wine um, and, and winemakers will all tell you, winemaking is not what we're doing in the winery we're doing that in the vineyard, and so it starts there. we pick the grapes a little earlier, more sweetness than we see for this dry white, but a little earlier than we would see for a more typical style, which is a classified style. therefore, on the palate we're seeing a wine with less residual sugar it goes to, uh, goes through the process of fortification, which uh, by way of balance offers a lovely clean, persistent finish because that alcohol cleans that residual sugar away from your mouth and leaves this lovely clean, lingering, persistent flavor. And then importantly, we're using the oldest trick in the book, oak, oak maturation, and that is one of the most special uh, conditioning uh, elements to some of the world's great sweet wines, uh, let alone uh, dry wines, oak. But what's so special about the oak we use is it's absolutely neutral oak, so it has no flavour impact on the wine itself, but what it does do coupled with this residual sweetness fortification and an element of acidity to balance is it develops complexity i guess traditional styles age for anywhere from two to you know 100 years in in casks this wine's aged it for seven um, so it gives the wine more character than what it began with but it's still i pull that up and out of oak still to retain a lot of freshness not letting it develop too much for that style and the name X, I mean, it's an arbitrary value. It doesn't, hopefully, give any clues as to what it could be. Given there's such a strong will to want to classify it in one's mind when they're in region, because they yeah. would have been drinking these stars all weekend, and I, I bottle it in a spirit bottle. It's a bottle people recognise for gin and whiskey. Yeah. So. There's some clues to not think about it as a musket. Let's think about this as a drink we put on ice, a drink we mix with, a drink we will have from the afternoon onwards.
0: Rolly, well, is it is it controversial that you'd make a fortified musket here and not follow the classification system at all?
1: Not at all because it's musket and people are drinking it. So we're all cheering. Yep. I mean, I think we have a real common goal, and I say this absolutely with honesty, we want people to drink musket because it is delicious. Mm. We love it. It grows so well in Rutherglen and it's a real, really strong part of our identity as Rutherglen producers, whether it's in a muscato, which, you know, the best muscatos is a Rutherglen brown musket, yeah. and I'll say that, but, <laughs> um, right through to our fortified styles, which are traditionally classified and, and appreciated with. Um, with uh, uh, all the respect that goes with that classification system, or some of the stuff like we're talking about today, it's still musket. So yeah. I'm just so pleased that people in enjoying, it. and we're seeing an absolute resurgence and in interest in musket. Generally, not just a certain style, the category as we're we're exploring in, in today is one of diversity, and so people can spend time up in region and. You could really have the whole weekend just looking at musket, at musket and still be curious by the end of the weekend because there's so much to see in this amazing grape.
0: And musket gin, mm. something I haven't seen before. And we tried it and I said to Rolly, Oh my god, it's divine he goes, It's sold out. It's and sold. I, <laughs> sold out in like, you know, a couple of days yeah, or something. Didn't last long. It didn't last long and I understand why. Mm. Uh so musketing gin, talk 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 to me about that.
1: It's It's been a really proud, I guess, result of the 2020 season. Um, It was an idea. It happened. uh, I'd had it some time ago and I just needed to meet the right person to help me work with it to complete it because I needed to meet a distiller. There's a big part of it in gin is distilling, obviously. So um, in the end, I mean, the basic vision was let's infuse gin with musket to see what happens, knowing that musket – as we spoke about before, with its amazing qualities of aroma and um, sweetness, which are two of its strengths, in gin seem to make a lot of sense. So it's a fruit gin. And quite simply, hand-picked fruit goes into finished gin and steeps in that gin. Wow. And for eight weeks, it it, it, um, harmonises with the gin. It takes a little while. And then we basket-press it um, really gently. And the resulting drink is a gin, that is this amazing um, orange blush hue mm. and it carries the character of the gin and we've teamed up with Backwoods in Yak and Danda who are bespoke distillers. They hand make these most amazing drinks um, from whiskey to gin. They do a lovely wye, rye whiskey and a few things and they they have a gin which is um, based on um, Alpine natives. They're, they're indigenous to the northeast and so they work on... Peppermint gums, strawberry gum, wattle seed, um, and then some of the classic gin components, and then we see those characters sit on the palate. But the musket delivers this aroma of with that, and it, it's this musk and this rose hip, and it's 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 quite intoxicating. And then we we look at the drink on the palate we see clean, dry gin. Um, it carries a slightly elevated ABV of 43%, which gives it a lovely, clean persistence. Mm. The gin does the work in the mid-palate, and then the length of the, the drink is this musket sweetness. And sweetness. so, I mean, Lee, Lee Atwood, who's the distiller there, we we, we came up with this, uh, the way we thought we needed to make it. We did it, you know, two weeks in. we, we raced up to Yak to have a look at this drink that was evolving before our eyes and we just looked at each other and we were, we were honestly blown away. We thought, that we've, we've managed to do this. This idea has followed through exactly how we thought. Um, we don't need to change a thing. And there, there it was and, yeah, we released it last month and six days later there's none left. <laughs> sure so it, it, it's been a, a lovely little nod to Musket being such an interesting grape Uh, collaboration and all that goes with that because there's a lot of lovely things about collaborating in in our industry and experimenting i mean i think one of the mantras i i have is risking nothing risks everything that's literally what's just pinned up next to my computer in my office and i think often you can be a bit nervous to try something different for fear of not failure, I think that's, you know, there's vanity comes in there. It's more yeah. something not working and whether that would be a, a loss commercially or it just it doesn't work, it's been a waste of time. But no way, like that's where projects like this, when they work out, you just
0: think, oh, we need to just risk more and more and experiment more and more. Yeah, Rolly, well, is it important for uh, wine regions to have uh, longevity and enduring success well into the future, is it important that winemakers like yourself really do start to challenge what has or what has always been?
1: I think in balance, again, it's like good wine, good food. Balance is for me anyhow that it's the key thing, the one thing that ties together a, a great experience across all sorts of formats, and balance is important. So to answer the question, I think um in and you know traditional areas like this we've we've been experimenting for those 160 plus years or how many it is now we've always experimented and we've always that's probably what's kept this area you know in sustainable wine production for so long because um if you don't start to tweak the things you're doing adapt to how the seasons evolve and you know the you can't grow or you can't still you can't be there because mm. you, you may not go forward. And I think, um, you know, I guess we're talking about more overt ways of um, experimentation in the wines I make, but I think in a traditional sense you're constantly experimenting and taking little risks because no one season is the same. So you must up. You, know, you must adapt the way you might grow those grapes, uh, uh, you know, through a certain month that might have some challenging weather or um, – different ways a ferment might need to evolve because how of how it it turns out it it wants to go you have to constantly be tweaking and just evolving what you're doing and that inherently um, involves some risk because it is a deviation from what you might normally be comfortable doing yeah 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 it's a moving beast a forever moving beast. it is and that's why we love it i mean it's never one day is the same in you know, in viticulture and wine okay. <laughs>
0: Yeah, not with the environment um, no forever wine. changing. Mm. Uh, when I, one of your um, experimental wines grabbed me, it's called After Dark and it's, mm. a, um, it's a fortified wine, mm. but it's uh, well suited to one of my favourite cocktails, a Negroni. <laughs> um, I want to chat about this because for me, like putting a wine into a Negroni, I was like, Oh my god, wow. And then I tried it and I was like, "Oh, this is unbelievable." Can you talk me through it?
1: Yeah, so this is it's a fascinating little wine. This this was one of the first wines that we ever made in in 2004 is the first vintage of this this drink, and it's made with Jurif, 100% Jurif, and it was released next to a table wine, a dry red, a Jurif. And Jurif one of the varieties I, I probably experiment with the most. I make seven at the moment, not every year, but there are seven ways in which we've interpreted it. Really successfully. Well it's a big variety of the region, right, Durice? Oh look, it's the absolute flagship of the red grape in Rutherglen. It's the it's the actual perfect place to grow it in the country and we've had a it's been here since nineteen oh eight, so as vignerons we understand it, which is really important as well. And every site will show it in a different way, so it plays into the terroir of Region 2 in a, in a big way. Can you actually tell people at home, because it's uh, w- what Giriff is? So Giriff's a red wine grape. Um, it's grown in warmer regions and drier regions, um, really in Australia. It's from uh, Montpellier in France. It was developed by a vigneron of, of the day in the 1870s called François um, Giriff, Dr. François Giriff, and he... Uh, cl- Made a grape out of two other grapes, Syrah and Pallorson. It's uh, Peloson's a little known, I guess, French varietal. And, and with the Syrah, when they were cloned together, it 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 became Jiriff. He named it after himself, <laughs> as, as any anyone would do, I suppose. And
0: and Syrah being Shiraz, Shiraz we would that's call it right. yep.
1: And when flocks are ravaged, um, the worlds and it, it, you know made it over to Geelong in Australia, and then came up to Rutherglen and they started really getting into the vineyards here in the eighteen eighties, nineties. Um, and then really shut down um, some of the regions in the early 20th century. The durif was brought over from France with the view that it would resist phylloxera, so we could, in fact, plant giraffe in our vineyards and the soil louse, which we didn't fully understand at the time. The wine industry would continue, and in fact, it came over. That didn't work because, as we know now, it's in the roots, the root stock, not the uh, the variety. Um, yep. So we plant on phloxera-resistant American rootstock these days in phloxera zones like Glen. But geriff came over and it survived through being uh, having cuttings taken and propagated on these rootstocks. And since 1908, uh, it's grown in region and it is a real successive area. It's very um, typically manifests as a, as a robust red yeah it's chocolate it's earth it's got this lovely savory texture and it's very dry yeah carries some very intense tannin and often is matured in wineries for two to three years in some examples and, and made into a very big red. But it can make the most amazing fortified wine. Yeah,
0: I was going to say, because so so now people have context. Mm. Uh, you, you are getting a lot of um just you know, big, bold um, drifts up here, but mm. you've turned it into a fortified that I can then use in my Negroni. You can
1: make a Negroni with this drink. It's it's amazing. Equal parts. Uh, Aperol gin, a dry gin. It's a good London Dry gin and, and our after dark equal parts, whether it's 30, 30, 30, 60, 60, 60, 90, 90, 90. It's an amazing thing. And where Giriff's important, it, it I guess, it offers a lot of nice things in the drink. First is the colour. I mean, it's a deep garnet purple. It's an amazingly intense and vibrant colour. The nose is what's
0: amazing to me. So what I, am I getting on the nose?
1: So I picked the giraffe with a slightly earlier um, ripen- ripeness profile to that of what we would normally think of. Um, it comes in with, uh, in our site we see, um, we've got a north facing, facing slope to quartz and shale, which is quite unique in Rutherglen. Um, it sees this lovely intense cherry plum character, um, often with some Brambly red fruit, so it gives this lovely uh, intense fruit lift. And uh, on the palate, really importantly, is very fine tannin, and that's that's crucial to this this particular drink because it carries some residual sweetness. A lot less than some would think; it's moderate, rather than a lot, Mm. um, to be general. Is the tannin helps control that sweetness and give texture on the palate, and then with fortification. We see these lovely fresh fruit characters preserved and we see the balance struck between flavour, sugar and a lovely clean finish. And that's the hallmark of this drink is not a sweet sticky finish. We see sweetness in the mid palate, mm. not necessarily on the nose but on the, the finish it's got this lovely clean persistence which is what this uh, this neutral grape spirit offers. And you would just sub it out with your vermouth. You do, indeed, yes. So you you swap out the vermouth and you can use after dark and it's a delicious little thing.
0: Uh, And I will be doing that next weekend. (laughs) (laughs) As soon as I can have my friends over and we'll be hitting up this. We're all bracing ourselves for some thirsty drinking over the
1: coming months, hopefully. Absolutely.
0: Lockdowns, yeah. Um, Yeah. Now... I want to chat about this because I'm i from the Mornington Peninsula. Um, I'm pretty engaged in the wine community down there. Uh, there's winemakers that are uh, playing around with white wine and making them like red wines. Mm. You obviously touched on this earlier. Mm. Can we chat a little bit about this concept of having a white wine and actually making it more in a red style?
1: Yeah, I think – for me it's not necessarily a red style, but we're using components that we do techniques that you techniques, would use. that's right. Yeah. So components or elements of the grape which we'd normally are uh, not engage in, in white wine making in a more traditional sense, but using them. So I'm talking about the skins namely. And um one of the varieties that we, we planted in here in two thousand and three and have grown and I just absolutely are besotted with is viognier. Mm. And that in itself has this wonderfully challenging reputation that uh, really puts the onus on me to deliver something which is, is engaging and fulfilling as a drink um, with that context, uh, is using these skins. Because Viognier, for me, I feel responds to that beautifully. The skins contribute texture. And I think when you're introducing this idea, talking about using, you know, making whites like reds, texture is a big part of that. In red wine, we have tannin, and that's an important structural component that um, can make or break wine in one sense. In white wine, we start to, we're seeing, like you rightly introduced, a lot of people playing with this. And it's fantastic because for me, straight away, it heralds this suitability to certain sorts of food. Particularly, a lot of you know, delicious um, to be really broad Asian cuisine that might have a little bit of spice or um, certain zesty, uh, fresh characters that sometimes is really challenging to to match with wine. Some of these skin contact wines can be amazing to uh, match there, and just as a drinking wine, when we're not pouring them really cold, they might just be a little bit below room temperature. They are flavoursome; they've got character. Mm-hmm you know, that word complexity, which whatever that is, it's so difficult to define <laughs> that and I try not to say complexity because I just don't find it communicates much at all. But there's so much going on. Yeah. And these are wines which um, offer a lot of interesting ways we can drink with them, whether it be for food or temperature or uh, – and so, yeah, I've really found there've been that it's been a, a great way to further um, problem-solve a variety's options Mm. is to use skin contact and so with viognier we've we've found that to be great fun and it's given us some yeah produced some stunning uh examples of of a a yummy interesting table wine
0: i often ask this question what are your three favorite varieties And they may not necessarily be what you grow Mm. but what are your three favorite varieties to drink i mean the you know, I could easily kind of put the
1: caveat across this or who am I drinking with, what time of day, uh, yeah. Is it what food, because then there's a hundred varieties. But I guess of late I've been really – I've been trying to drink, um, you know, each month a set variety just to really get my head in that. I've been drinking a lot of Grenache lately. Yes, you I've been said loving that loving Grenache, on. particularly its uh, savoury, crunchy, youthful kind of spectrum. We can, you know, make it in lots of different ways. Um, and what has really uh, got me very – um engage with grenache is how we see good fruit really drive the wine i mean I th- there's nowhere to hide with for my for my palate um, there's nowhere to hide with uh grenache if you don't have fantastic fruit and and um i guess it's a bit of a new world thing and you know to make it as a standalone variety is not traditionally what we'd see in old world but i think you know that's fine, and they're delicious. Yeah. So, yeah, seeing… seeing Some a bit Branche, of Grenache you're loving. What else? Viognier. I mean, I oh. because it's such a, you know, it might sound a bit cliche because, you know, I make it, but I think um, I, f- I feel I need to drink Viognier as broadly as I can to keep refining the way I'm, I'm seeing it made here in, in my winery. I think um, there are some fantastic examples, um, particularly out of the Rhone Valley in France. I mean, it's, it's home, and, of course, we see some stunning wines that whilst they're traditional they're still very modern mm, i feel mm, as a, as mm, a drink mm. um, those ones that have minerality and freshness along yep. with absolute uh fruit drive and persistence it's it's a wonderful grape of texture too it can have a lot of that rolling glycerol which is controlled with good acidity growing in the right spot is yep. a wonderful drink um and what else have i been drinking like oh i love penamonia actually oh. penamonia is a got me into wine many years ago um, and I love its ability to offer power and restraint all in one. Um, I think of some well-known examples in Great Western, good vintages there for me offer earth, savoury character, um, structure, but they're so fine and they're, mm. s- they're ethereal. And um, I, I feel next to Pinot Noir, which you know, I love that Pinot Noir as well, um Pinamonia offers this lovely uh, earthy grit and a bit bit of depth behind fruit, which I appreciate. So I think um yeah, we drink we drink Pinot a bit and And it also makes my favourite, which is champagne. That's that's right. <laughs> Where um yeah, I'd say good good champagne um and Pinot Noir Pina Muni are the two things at home we drink the most.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. How interesting. Yeah. Ah! Uh-huh. I, our last question is uh, because you're obviously someone that experiments. What, what's one of the strangest winemaking techniques that you've seen?
1: Hmm. It's a good question. It's it's strange is probably not the right word because that's only of interest to It might not you. be strange for everyone, yeah, but of interest to you. What I've really found compelling uh, in my you know. Humble observations as a young <laughs> producer have been how uh, stem contact reds can evolve. I've been fascinated with using various degrees of stem. So that's the, the the green the green I guess stem material that the grapes actually grow on that then hang off the vine. Those stems can be used in wine making, and I've been absolutely. Uh, fascinated and passionately exploring the use of stems for some years and wow. and um, I guess inspired by the northern Rhone, as many of us are, with stem use, Saint-Joseph, Cote-Rotier areas that traditionally have used stems in the most wonderful way and that word ethereal comes up again with some of these wines but they, they're not necessarily for me used to show off the stems, they're used to support the fruit mm. and for me this idea comes down to knowing Absolutely back to front, the place in which you're growing the grapes, knowing backwards the variety that you're playing with as the winemaker, and knowing how these wines will develop over the short to long term. And they're things that, as a young producer, you know, they'll take me another decade or two to start to even get close to better understanding. But that's the beauty of it. So journeying around the use of stems in reds has been a thing. And yeah, you know, we do a drift Viognier, which is co fermented using about 30% stem, yep. but that changes from season to season. That's one of the things I need to – that, that you, you you aspire to really dial in and also drift with 100% of the stems. That's something I do as well and, you know, people might think that's crazy. How can you do that? There's so much tannin already, but the dynamic in the ferment kind of does the opposite thing and that's where it's a fascinating – it's a bit of a wine geek thing, but <laughs> it's where I geek out a bit using stems in that sense. So that's, there, that's probably one of the, the most – Interesting
0: things. No, on I like that. And, yeah. that, was a, that was a good one. Mm. Um, Rolly, thank you so much for joining us today on By the Glass. It was really, really interesting. We could obviously chat about this for hours. <laughs>
1: Thanks, Tom. It's been great. It's been lovely to catch up and I'm I'm really pleased you've found that um, you've had, you're have you having a great time in Glen.
0: Loving it. Absolutely loving it. Uh, guys, this was Rolly from uh, Sarn Estate. Uh, please come out here and meet the man himself. You will... Love it, Rotherglen's beautiful. Uh, see you later, and uh, see you next week. Bye.